Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Everyone loves a good origin story. Some get a little overdone, though. The Fall of the Bastille, or the Battle of Valley Forge, or Crossing of the Rubicon. It doesn't make them bad stories, but it's nice to freshen things up a bit once in a while. That's where Korea comes in. The first thousand years of its history are dramatic, improbable, and exciting, and yet it's a topic that's not covered that often in English-speaking countries. But today we're going to give it a shot. Let's begin. <laughs> All right, we're here on HI101 with Phil Downey. Oh, I'm back. How's it going, Phil? It's going. OG, original guest. Oh my gosh. Can't believe you keep roping me into this. <laughs> Can't believe you keep asking me to come back. Shut up, man. Don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And you picked one heck of a topic well, this time I'd like around. Well, I'd like to make it hard for you. You, you pick the hardest topics by far. Absolutely. Every time. Gary's got his religious topics. <laughs> You just like making me go for the the like as much research as possible. Did I pitch like three of them to you, and this was the the lesser of all three evils? I think so. Yeah. I think this was yeah one of three options. Yeah. and they were all like, no, that's hard. Oh God, that's hard. Oh geez, that's the worst one. We'll do the first one. <laughs> yeah, one just made me too sad <laughs> to be honest with you. Maybe someday we'll do it, but oh lord, not this time around. No, you decided that you wanted to talk about Korean uh, history and basically put it out there that way. Yeah. Let's talk about Korea. Yeah. Well, you know what actually sparked this? This is almost tangentially related to what we're doing here is uh, that Bill Wirtz video on Japan. Oh, yeah. He talks about Korea at some point. And I was like, I don't know about Korea. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, Korea is a really interesting place in that it's kind of always being somewhat overshadowed by much more omnipresent powers. I'm not going to say more important because that's obviously ridiculous, but you know, it's, it's, it's right beside China and China has been a superpower for thousands and thousands of years, like without, without stop, just going and going. Yeah. Like I don't remember when I discovered that China and Japan were countries, but I remember when I first heard about Korea because like it happened that much later. Really interesting. Huh. Well, one of the first places I turn to uh, when looking for new subjects is I've got this old first year university textbook called A History of World Societies. Sounds legit. <laughs> it is the most basic, generic overview of history, just like world history that I've ever, ever seen. And it's perfect for stuff like this because it gives you like the the very, very short, brief overview of certain topics, right? Of course. But here's the problem. I open this up. 
And this text is 1,100 pages. And it's not like it's small writing, right? Like, yeah, you see, no. this, this is not, this is not a, a feeble textbook. And I turned to the, the, the section on Korea, and I'm going to show it to you right now. Pretty and tiny. it starts here, and it starts, and it ends here. Okay. And it's exactly one page yep. out of 1,100 pages. <laughs> and I went, and I went, uh-oh. How long is Japan for comparison? Oh. Uh, yeah, it's a good two and a half, three pages. I mean, this is talking about, you know, kind of ancient East, East Asia, but of still course. like, you know, this is after a full chapter of China and and <laughs> boy, am I in trouble now. Uh-oh. Oh, the other thing too is that apparently the Dan Carlin subreddit found me. Oh, really? So I've seen like this massive growth in numbers lately. Well, congratulations. Oh, thanks, man. But now I'm like really worried because there's going to be all these people. <laughs> fact checking. First... No, well, it's not even the fact checking. I mean, that's that's bad enough. But there's all these people whose first uh, episode is going to be me bumbling <laughs> through Korean history when I've just spent like hours and hours. Like I, I went and got actual books to read and like. Oh, I'm on the all worst. These... You want to just switch this to something about Europe? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to just How talk about Europe? like. I don't know, the tutors for a while. I feel like I can just do that <laughs> off the dome. Charlemagne, again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Also fun, pronunciations. That's going to be wild. Oh, I should yeah. stop apologizing for this subject. It's actually really interesting. It's going to be a very good show, and I'm excited. I'm just also more nervous than I would normally be at this point in the show. Well, I'm glad I've got you on edge. Yeah, I, that's that's really how you prefer me. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> All right, let's do this, Phil. Let's get to it i know how much you like beginnings and stuff i do it's my favorite thing so i thought i would tell you about the beginning of korea hey are you ready i'm ready okay so the lord of heaven hwanin uh-huh had a son hwanong obviously and he came down to earth founded the city of shinsi mm-hmm. and when he was there a tiger and a bear came to him and said hey we want to be human beings as they do and often. he said yeah no problem i can make that happen all you need to do is the two of you need to live in this cave for 100 days and eat nothing but mugwort and garlic. Sorry, what wart? Mugwort. Mug? Mugwort, yeah. G. It's, it's, yes, with a G. It's kind of a savory-ish herb. It's not have, used have terribly extensively it? in Western cooking. <laughs> a lot of times you'll actually see it. it it's more common almost in, in Chinese medicine than it is in necessarily cooking. Okay. You can absolutely find it around, though, and it's it's a staple, or it's a it's a fairly common ingredient in a number of korean dishes so all right fact checkers get to it <laughs> what what are they fact checking to see if you're right the koreans use mugwort in some dishes yeah i'm i'm fairly confident on that one i'm giving you an easy one dude. Oh, dang okay fine sounds good good reese <laughs> so anyways the tiger gave up he was like oh this is the worst and he left about halfway through but the bear stuck with it and at the end of 100 days uh Huanang kept his promise and turned this bear into a beautiful woman named Ang Nyo and married her. They had a son named Dong Gun, and he founded uh, the kingdom of Gojo Xian in 2357 BCE. And that's where Korea comes from. Well, run that year by me again. 2357 BCE. 2357. That's about 4300 years ago. Okay. Yeah. A little more then. Obviously, none of this is true, but this is like the... the... What the f*** are we doing here, man? <laughs> okay, so we're here on HI 101. <laughs> Phil, you're, the, you're also the only guest I ever have to bleep. I just want to put that out <laughs> I'm <there>. sorry. <laughs> 
Um, no, none of that's true. The the first records we have of Gojo Xun is about 7th century BCE, Chinese records. And that's really where we're going to find a lot of this information is from, from uh, historical records in China, which are fairly good and really like the most dominant seat of of academia in this area mm-hmm. so if we can find it in chinese records that's as, that's about as good as we can do in terms of uh confirming that something is true at this point in time Sounds uh, good and it's always good to have if you're talking about a certain country or or ethnic group or what have you it's always good to find confirmation of what they're saying in the records of another uh, civilization or country or ethnic group it just lends that much more credence to that information just because why would they bother making that up really yeah exactly but still the this oldest uh kingdom uh that that we can kind of relate to the korean peninsula and to the korean people eventually uh is fairly old like we're talking 2700 years ago wow we're talking it's it's a it's a bronze age society they're trading across the uh, the Yellow Sea with the Qi Kingdom, which is part of uh, China. Yep. If you look at the Korean Peninsula, there's sort of a little tiny peninsula that juts off to the west sure. and comes close to China. And that's the easiest way to kind of cross from the Korean Peninsula to China. So they'd have uh, rudimentary trade routes going uh, across there. There's also uh, another state sort of north of Qi that is actually bordering uh, land border with Gojixian, which is called Yan. Mm-hmm. They'll be coming into the into play soon as well. But both of these states are, are part of the, the Chinese empire at this point. So Gojixian would have been like a con- confederate state. So it's a bunch of independent walled cities and city states that kind of either through conquest or alliance sort of grow together and, and become much larger and more powerful through working together so you know many of these city-states would have asked to join this confederacy other ones would have been defeated in warfare as you do um that's pretty typical for this time in in history to grow that way sounds about right it had a reputation in china of being kind of like the, the people of of gojoshan of being kind of arrogant and and kind of uptight like very haughty they had a very clearly delineated like aristocratic class and like a a, a class hierarchy which actually, interestingly enough, was somewhat similar to Republican Rome in a lot of ways. Like there was specifically an equestrian class that was nobility that was wealthy enough to own a horse, which they had that um, that societal status because of that ability to own a horse, but also a military obligation to use those horses in battle if they were called to do so, which is very similar to an arrangement that, that Republican Rome had with what they called the, the equestrian class as well. Is this sort of social hierarchy common at this point in history or at this point in a civilization? Yeah, that's that's something that you would see relatively common. Yeah. Commonly. But China didn't have anything quite so formal? I'm not terribly familiar with China's uh, societal class uh, system at this point in time. They're a little bit more organized in that you're looking at the imperial family and then governorships in these these various states that make up the empire. My, eh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna regret saying this. My understanding is that there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's a lot of stress placed on ability over necessarily family line, in the Chinese system. However, I, I could be very, very wrong, and of course there is a, a fairly prominent noble class there. Well, we all know that just passing rule to the next kid in line always works out well, everywhere. Yeah, absolutely, forever. hereditary is the best. I don't know how many times I've been here on this show. Or that hasn't 
worked out. <clears throat> Russia. <clears throat> oh boy, Russia. I mean, certainly Russia's not the the only one, but they had a real bad run there a few times. Yeah. Gojoseon didn't really take up the entire peninsula. The sort of bottom half, actually it's not that far off from what would be South Korea now, sort of coalesced into another state called the Jin State. We don't actually know a ton about it. It was somewhat cut off, but like we don't have any real robust internal records. We know that it exists, but we don't know a lot about what was happening inside it. But it it, it was there and it was taking up part of the the peninsula. However, Gojoseon was absolutely more dominant in this region at that point in time, to the point where they were actually going toe-to-toe with that Yan state, the, the Chinese state that bordered it, and sometimes winning battles. But actually, more tellingly, sometimes losing battles really badly <laughs> to the point where like in, in around 300 BCE, they had, there, there was a war with the Yan state where they lost about 800 kilometers of territory Jeez. to Yan, but like still survived that. So you have to like consider how big a state would be, have to be to lose 800 kilometers of border and yeah, still no be kidding. okay. They were massive. So it's not just the Korean Peninsula here. It's also up into what we would call Manchuria, which means that it incorporated North Korea, parts of what is now China, parts of what's now Russia, uh, like a fairly sizable uh, chunk of of territory. So it was was pretty substantial. With this loss of territory, they actually moved their, their capital to what is now Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea. Yep. And it turns out that Pyongyang actually has a much longer history of being a center of uh, political power than Seoul actually does, which I found kind of interesting. Wow. There's really no reason it shouldn't. It's just that... Uh, that kind of makes sense considering how the story started. Absolutely. But you never really think of anything in North Korea necessarily being, <laughs> you know, <Ooh>. better in <laughs> any way, shape, or form, <laughs> including just oldness, I guess. <laughs> About 100 years later, 195 BCE or so, there was a, a king named uh, Jun who took in a defecting Yan general. Mm-hmm. And this general's name was uh, Wimang. And the next year, uh, he staged a coup. Oh, great. Drove Jun out. Jun escaped to the state of Jin, uh, where he basically lived out the rest of his days. And Wimang took over as as king of Gojoshan. Wow. It was pretty... It was pretty swift. It was pretty decisive. It just kind of happened. It was over and done. Crafty bugger. Yeah. Yeah. Never should have taken him in. Bad move. <laughs> should have built a wall <laughs> and made the yawn pay for it. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, Weemon didn't just do this because he was power hungry. It's also because he had a bone to pick with the, the Han Chinese mm. because you don't you don't just defect as a general if everything's peachy and you're getting everything you want, right? No. So really, he turned basically the the whole state of Gojoshan into a bit of a military machine with the eventual goal of taking on the Han Chinese in mind. Wow. Yeah, he was he was uh, ballsy. Fairly, that's <laughs> I, I was going to say single minded, but <laughs> that works too. And I mean, he himself didn't actually get around to this giant war that he was he was aiming angling for but his uh grandson Ugeo, finally saw the opportunity for something to happen see jin was trying to make contact with han china set up sort of an embassy sure 
But to get to China, the ambassadors from Jin would have to go through Gojo Xian and vice versa, right? So Emperor Wu, who, by the way, is one of the most famous emperors of this period of time in China, really big deal, um, sent an ambassador uh, named Shi He to Gojo Xian to basically negotiate for rite of passage. Mm-hmm. They don't want to bring any armies through. They're not looking for trade necessarily. They just want to be able to send emissaries back and forth through Gojoshian territory to Jin just to just to chat. And Yugeo said, no. Listen, my grandfather got into some stuff with you guys. I know it's been a while. I know it's been like 70 years. We're not cool yet. It's not going to happen. And he had one of his generals ride with Shehe and personally escort him to uh, the border of Yan. Wow. That's how much he wanted him out of there. He was like, yeah, he was done with it. He did not want this to happen. Now. But Shehe was a crafty guy and straight up assassinated the general right as they got to the border. I was just waiting. Like, someone's going to die here. I can tell. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Why would I even be telling you this story if something wasn't about to go down? Of course, right? It's like, do you think we're just here for story time? No, we're here for awesome story time. Not only does he kill the general, but he goes back to uh, Emperor Wu and says, I have defeated Ugeo in battle. And <laughs> you know, here's the head of one of his generals to show it. And, then, and as a result, Gojo Shan is essentially defeated, like, We've got this in the bag. This is no longer a problem. Yeah. And Emperor Wu says, oh, that's that's awesome. That's, a, you know, good job. And makes him uh, uh, general and gives him the entire, it basically gives him military command of the entire Liaodong uh, area, which is that little peninsula that we were talking about before. Yep. Used to be Korean territory, but they, the uh, Yan have pushed the border down south of, of Liaodong. Mm-hmm. And so he gives them this border territory and basically tells them, like, you're responsible for this now since you did just such a good job securing this border. You know, number one, it's not going to be that dangerous because, hey, you took care of that. Number two, here's a nice cushy job for you as thanks. Yeah. Ugeo was not happy. Yeah. When word of this got back to him. I can't imagine this ending well for anyone. Well, he was very angry to the point where he pulled together an army. Yep. As you do. You, and it's it's one of those things where it's not even about necessarily you know asserting yourself you know against the Chinese or or really even being worth that much uh, politically or anything like that. He was just personally insulted. Yeah, this is just straight up retribution. Raids into Liaodong, not for the purpose of taking the territory, but specifically goes on a mission to <laughs> kill Shehe. Oh boy! And succeeds. Yep. They go on the raid. They kill Shehe. And he's like, all right, take, we took care of business. This is over. And Wu goes, no, it's, uh-uh. not. <laughs> no, it's not. See, Emperor Wu, one of the things that he's most famous for is that he was responsible for massive territorial expansion for China in this time. He had no problems pushing borders. And he went, oh, oh, you guys want to rumble? Yeah, we can do this. No problem. Let me just, yeah. (laughs) I might have to edit that out. That was real creepy. (laughs) Wu responds not just by crushing them with a military force from the north, from Yan, but also sends uh, a a ground force via ships 
across the Yellow Sea, lands them in the very south, um, and hits <laughs> the capital, hits Pyongyang, with a two-pronged attack, one from each side. And Gojo Xian is really bad at coordinating against like any of this they're thrown into such disarray because they don't know what to do they're being hit by a two-pronged assault yeah you got to remember that they live on a peninsula they're used to soldiers coming from one direction yep and one direction only they cannot hold up against these uh these chinese forces especially because Wu was not holding back i mean he sent way more soldiers than he really necessarily needed to but again, this has been very personal for a very long time. This is no longer about necessarily territorial expansion. We're making points at this point. At this. We're, yeah, we're, he's being made an example of. Yep. Absolutely. And once he's done just utterly wrecking the Gojoshan military, he also sets up four commanderies throughout the Korean peninsula. Mm. And these aren't just like little outpost forts with like a you know small military garrison or something like that these are full working cities that he builds on the spot that are not only there for military support but also populated with people to do everything that is necessary to support this military outpost yeah farmers merchants craftsmen all of that is in place there are political commanders in place to uh, administrate the area just around these commanderies and make sure that they keep in line with Han Chinese um, uh, policies. Mm -hmm. So we're talking like these commanderies had populations of like hundreds of thousands of people. That's crazy. And just like that, Gojo Shan is basically done as a political entity. Yeah, you done goofed. It kind of doesn't exist anymore. And so... This episode is called The Three Kingdoms of China. So far, we've really talked about one, maybe two, I guess, if you throw Jin in there, yep. even though we don't know a whole lot about it. But we really need to know about Gojo Shan to really talk about the Three Kingdoms era proper. Also, as I said earlier, I knew how much you were going to like this story. <laughs> yep. And it's an entertaining one, so I'm absolutely happy to include it in this arc that we're going to go through today. I am glad but, that you brought it in. That being said, I think this is probably a really good place to take a break because... They're in a bit of a rough spot. So when we come back, we're going to start kind of pulling things out of the fire a little bit, at least when we're talking about this from a Korean standpoint. All right. We're back on HI101 here with Phil Downey. Yep. And we just saw the first Korean state kind of completely get wrecked. They just... Pretty much. But we're here to talk about the Three Kingdoms. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to talk about next is the Three Kingdoms and where they've come from. Jin, uh, we kind of didn't really talk about them in this whole thing. They were there, apparently. They were there. They, they wanted to do some stuff with China, and the other guys were like, nah, dog. So this this complete disaster with the, the Han Chinese was 109 BCE. Mm-hmm. About 100 BCE, so within the next decade or so, Jin completely collapses as a political entity. We're not Korea, sure why. you're not doing good so no, so far. <laughs> Just Just give him time. Start okay? over, I guess. The story of Korea is really a, a story of prevailing through adversity. Mm -hmm. And that adversity is almost always China, <laughs> which 
is oh. really just a function of its uh, geography, yeah. right? I mean, when you're when you're a satellite of something as large as China, of, of course they're going to loom like large and ever present in your day to day life. How could it not? Uh, China's a, a center of cultural power, political power, military power. At basically any time, they they could they could really make life very very difficult, as Gojo Xiong just found out. Yep. It's really not that different from looking at other major centers of of cultural power throughout history. I mean, this isn't a this isn't a unique thing about Korea. I, you know, you look at something like, for example, the 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 Spaniards during the the Roman periods, right? You know, they're always trying to kind of keep some semblance of of a, a cultural independence from Rome, and yet it's Rome. Like, what are you gonna do? It's Rome. Sooner or later, either through you know the occasional military conquest or through just cultural assimilation, they just become more and more Romanized over time. And it's not it's not always necessarily an insidious thing. They're just there. And I mean, you and I as Canadians today in the modern day completely understand this living as Americans yeah, had. Know how it is? We watch a lot of American TV, man. <laughs> we watch. Very little Canadian TV is the better way to say it. There is very little Canadian TV. <laughs> yeah, is there's, maybe the, the most salient point because it's not it's not a market that needs servicing thanks to yeah. our friendly neighbors down south. And not only that, not only that, but there's even less good Canadian TV. Yeah, and then you get into this weird cycle of well, is that a is that a problem because it's underfunded because it's being replaced or is it because, or is there a little of it because it's bad or, and I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because there is this cultural force that's overshadowing this entire discussion, making every single point around the discussion completely moot because you can't isolate it. You can't isolate it. It's It's impossible. impossible. Absolutely impossible. Korea is looking at the same thing. They're, they're attached to China. China is on its Northern border they are uh, ostensibly, at least at some point, fairly similar to China ethnically, at least that that region of China. You know, they are speaking a, a, a proto-Korean language, but it's not as far off from Chinese as, well, from the type of Chinese they're speaking in that region uh, as it would eventually become as they differentiated. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things against them in terms of preserving their identity, and that's kind of the interesting thing about Korea is that they managed to do so. There's really no reason they should have existed as an independent nation. Yeah, I'm just sitting here all. thinking, like, how do you stay separate from something like China when it's right there? Well, that's the that, that's that's why I don't understand why Korea isn't talked about more because everyone loves a good underdog story, right? And Man, just find me a better one than Korea. Well, it's one of those gaps where, like, as soon as you realize it, you're like, "Well, this doesn't make sense. I gotta, I gotta find out what happened here." Yeah, yeah, it makes no sense whatsoever. The first of the three kingdoms that we're going to talk about is called uh, Sila, uh, S I L L A. I'm probably spelling these out is not going to help me. I'm probably, maybe the audience. Maybe I don't know. No, they're just going to tell me how I'm pronouncing Korea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. Yeah, that's that's the funny thing. I I've got Japanese pronunciation pretty pretty good. I do a pretty good job at that. I I used to be better than I am now at Chinese pronunciation, but I can still usually work my way through it. 
Korean. I'm going off of some pronunciation guides and some YouTube videos here, man. I'm I'm impressed so far. We're we're doing our best. It sounds it sounds good. It's uh it's yeah it's a bit of a gap for me, but then again, so is everything on this show, which is uh, kind of the point. Kind of the point. Yeah, it makes it a lot of fun to to look into. Exactly. So Sheila is basically the uh, southeastern tip of the peninsula. And it extends about halfway up the peninsula. And so this is former Jin territory, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't necessarily know what caused Jin to collapse. But when it did, it would have reverted to a bunch of little tiny city-states and and smaller political entities and then slowly built itself back up again, right? That's pretty typical from from when you see a a power collapse. And it's actually pretty similar to what we talked about in the the Charlemagne episode, right? In terms of the Roman Empire collapsing down into little governorships and then slowly building itself back up, either through alliance or conquest. But Shila specifically was founded in 57 BCE. So, you know, another 40, 50 years after the the conquest of Gojoshan and and the, uh, the the dissolution of Jin not that long after and it was founded by a man named Pak Hyekguase who was hatched from an egg laid by a white horse and inspired spontaneous submission by six uh, different clans at the age of thirteen. Uh huh. That one I think might be true actually. Sure, sounds completely legit. These founding myths are the best. I really love them. Citation needed. <laughs> I mean, you know, in reality, grew out of a confederacy of former Jin states. Um, it, it, three of them had gotten together to form a, a confederation called Samhan that just, like, it shows up just after the collapse of Jin and then again slowly builds uh, throughout that region. And by the year 300, 300 CE, so we're, we're getting less than 2,000 years ago now, had solidified into a fairly powerful kingdom with a centralized government, uh, had, had taken over all these little tiny holdouts of, of power that came out of the collapse of Jin. By the year 356, it was solidified into like a, a hereditary monarchy by King Nemul, who was like kind of the first one that we have like a good name on. There's, there's a lot of gaps in this history because the thing about being so close to a power like China is they really only pay attention to you when it matters to them, not necessarily when things are happening that matter to you. You got to be a pain in their butt before they start paying attention. Yeah, or fascinating or useful or yeah, fair. anything, <laughs> anything at all. You've got to draw that attention yeah. your way. And Naimul was also the first king to establish official uh, embassies with China with uh, the two other states that we're going to talk about, which are called uh, Bekje and uh, Gogorio. And these and, and that happened around 377 or so that he got those embassies established really with this look at, at kind of, okay, listen, you know, we've each been kind of picking at, at each other's borders a little bit. We've each been kind of vacuuming up these little tiny powers. We should really look at kind of acknowledging at least that you know, all three of us are, are real powers in this area that we're more than just some little tribe like yeah. the other ones. Uh, this is this is a kingdom, not just a little a little village, right? Another thing to realize about Korean geography is, you know, at the top, yeah, it's it's on the very northeast of, of China and you know is touching what is now Russia even. But the southern tip is only about 160 kilometers away from Japan. Yeah. And so that's really the closest p- 
point to mainland to the the core uh, for Japanese islands. Mm-hmm. And so Jin had had some contact, uh, as as had uh, Gojo Shion actually, some contact with ancient Japan. There was specifically a, I suppose you could call it a dynasty um, called Yayoi in Japan between about 200 BCE and 200 CE that they had had some contact going back and forth with after, you know, the collapse of Jin and, and the founding of Shila, there was some contact with between Shila and Yayoi, as well as the dynasty that came after that. The dynasty that came after the, the, uh, the uh, Yayoi was a little bit less friendly. So Shila had to deal with some naval attacks from, from Japan. So they were a little bit insecure on that side. They were also, you know, as much as they managed to set up embassies with uh, Bekje, they didn't really always get along that well. When you put a couple of very powerful players in a very small area like the Korean Peninsula, you're going to inevitably have issues. One year they're going to be your best friends. The next year there's going to be some sort of war going on. The and, most bitter of rivals. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting because once we go through the three of these, you're going to see that they're actually they're actually really well balanced in terms of being uh, competitors with one another. What is this, some sort of video game? You know what? There are (laughs) parallels that could be drawn. You could use this as a pretty good starting point for an asymmetrical (laughs) multiplayer game. (laughs) Because what Sheila had was this constant threat from all sides. You've got the Wa Japanese who could, you know, hypothetically attack off of your coast at any point in time you've got Bekje, which is on your your western or southwestern borders who could attack at any time you've got uh, Goguryeo on your northern borders who could attack at any time you're not really sure so you start really developing a, a military class that's small but really well trained and Shila was also uh, like it's a fairly good chunk of Korea in terms of being like farmland and like resource rich and things like that so Shiloh was well you know well off it was set up well but it was under constant threat you know they they did actually have a Japanese invasion in 364 that they they managed to fight off and all of this eventually would culminate in the development of a warrior class called the the Hwarang which were uh, it actually means flowering knights now these aren't going to be for another couple hundred years but I read about this and went, oh, this is the thing that Phil needs to know. <laughs> of course, obviously. This wouldn't come up until like the mid-5th century. Mm-hmm. And, and it would be after kind of the introduction of, of Buddhism to the, to the peninsula. But these young men would train from the time that they were small boys, uh, not only in warfare, but also in philosophy, in religion, in aesthetic disciplines, things like that, to try and make as uh, well-rounded a warrior as possible. Sounds like my kind of video game. It does sound like your kind of video game. <laughs> and they would ride into battle with these ho- on these horses decked out with, with flowers and were apparently just absolutely to be feared. They were very, very effective. Okay, um, yeah, just going to write a note, look these guys up when I get home. <laughs> but again, we're not going to... Uh, we're not really going to get into those guys for another couple centuries, but you know this is the this is the society that would eventually point us towards the the development of that warrior class. And again, it's not as though they came out of nowhere. This idea of of a professional standing army, a very well trained army, comes out of this constant threat that they're being uh, subjected to by their neighbors. So we've met, mentioned uh, Bekje a couple of times here. Mm-hmm. 
again, founded fairly soon after uh, everything went down with the, the Han Chinese. A little bit later than Shila, but it, it was founded in about 18 BCE. Okay. Um, by a king named Anjo, who was actually uh, Goguryeo uh, nobility, who kind of got on the wrong end of some internal politicking and was expelled, basically. Uh-oh. Founded... He, he left and founded his own kingdom. Screw you guys. So there. I'm going home. Except I'm not <laughs> going home. I'm going to make my own home. Capital originally around present day Seoul. Oh. A lot of these places are, are being founded as cities because they're on, you know, they're in a river basin or something uh, that makes them like ideal uh, settlements. Yep. So, I mean, this, this isn't, this isn't unique to Korea in any way, shape or form. This is the reason that you get all these ancient capitals on rivers or on yeah, lest, inlets and things like that. Lest we forget Kiev, right? Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, the fact that Seoul has been uh, settled for thousands of years is not a surprise whatsoever. Um, like Sheila would grow to prominence really slowly through either alliance or through conquest. Um when Bekje started out, they were actually a fairly formidable uh, military power in the area. Eventually solidified as a full kingdom uh, under King Goy, who, you know, talking mid-200s at this point in time, who basically managed to consolidate large por- portions of whatever was left from these post-Jin confederacies, whatever Sheila hadn't already vacuumed up. Uh, this guy went on a conquest spree and just took basically... As much as he could of whatever was left. There was a, a few holdouts still after this guy, but Grab that one and this one and ooh, you'll do nicely. Once, once you get a little bit of momentum in something like that, they kind of fall in line pretty quickly because with the threat of military invasion, there's going to be lots of these people who basically go, you know what? I'm going to save you the trouble. <laughs> I'm going to be Beck J now. Look at this white flag. Mm-hmm. Just check it out, man. Tell you what, you don't pillage and plunder our entire village which really doesn't have that much, but we don't feel like going through anyways. You don't do that. We'll join up with you. We'll do whatever you say. Uh, no questions asked. We're the, the not killing is a good enough deal for us. <laughs> Please? 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 Sound good? Okay. Great. Beck J it is. Beck J is interesting because while they started off as a strong military power and, and you know, would always continue having a strong military... They did a bit of a 180 at some point in their in their history and started focusing on trade. Mm-hmm. They became a, a very strong naval power, like they they focused really strongly on naval power because on the be, being on the west coast of the Korean Peninsula, they were the ones that had the the best um, naval access to China. Makes sense. And they decided to exploit that. They struck up you know new trade routes across the LOC to China trading whatever goods they could produce for whatever goods they could get um, which was really helpful for them culturally because what that meant was not only were they you know importing products but they were also importing uh, ideas Mm -hmm. Um, Chinese culture Chinese writing the idea of Buddhism um, which was really really strong in the uh, in the region at this point originally brought in by uh, Baekje not only that but they, they also established embassies with japan and managed to do so on fairly friendly terms Mm -hmm. and so they were also trading with japan they became this kind of cultural crossroads really for the three societies where they were making sure that 
you know, Chinese ideas got to Japan and Jap- Japanese ideas got to China and, you know, taking advantage of both themselves and exporting their own ideas to both. And it's, it's really this interesting kind of uh, milieu of different concepts as well as just, you know, consumer goods. So, I mean, not to reference your competitors yet again, but is this the city where, or the, the place where the rich hipster Kukai got Buddhism from in the Bill Wirtz History of Japan video? Oh, goodness, I can't remember. I would imagine so. That always that always struck me, and I'm like, it sounds the same, similar at least. I mean, he probably hams up the pronunciation in that video, but he talks about a rich hipster named Kukai goes over and brings back a new form of Buddhism. Right, I mean... Uh, Korea in general, and and especially at this point in time, Baekje is a, is a major center of Buddhism. So yeah. maybe I I don't remember from the video honestly, or I don't remember. Show notes. Yeah, it'll <laughs> absolutely go in the show notes. But Kukai, I I don't I don't remember when it was that he would have been bringing Buddhism to the island. We'll I mean, this timing it. works out, but then again, so does some later stuff that we're going to get to, where he would have technically technically been getting it from Sheila probably. Mm. But I mean, both both societies were were strongly Buddhist. It's just that Bekje was the one that was really uh, pushing the whole, you know, exchange of cultures yeah. sort of concept, at least early on. So yeah, they had they had Buddhism as their state religion by 384. You know what? Looking at this, this is absolutely when Japan got Buddhism. <laughs> I yes. actually had that in the notes. Yeah, absolutely. This would have been when Japan got Buddhism. But I, I mean, they took with it Chinese writing at this point in time. This would have been like when when uh, Japan started adopting Chinese writing and then eventually adapting it to their own uh, their own linguistic needs. But yeah, before this, no, they 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 had. I, I'm not going to say no uh, contact with China because of course they did, but it yeah, was obviously much more limited uh, before Baekje came along. Cool. And the final of the three kingdoms that we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, Goguryeo, is in the north, and it's kind of interesting because. Bekje's got this whole like economic mercantilist cultural thing going for it. Sheila's got this whole like very concentrated resource rich professional army thing going for it. When you get to Goguryeo, what you've got is it starts basically out of the collapsed uh, Gojoshan state in the north, right? Mm-hmm. And begins with a confederacy of five local tribes of, you know, they're ethnically, um, they were called Yemek um, tribes that are Korean and kind of like the progenitors of Koreans ethnically, but also at this point, there's a bit of a connotation of being kind of wild, like they're steppe people kind Mm, of thing. Yeah. This Confederacy uh, starts in 53 CE. So, you know, again, a little bit later than either Baekje or Sheila, but it's in South Manchuria, North Korea kind of area. Mm -hmm. And it's huge country there. Big enough that this confederacy quickly outgrows kind of the carrying capacity of the of the area that it holds. Oddly fine. Right? That's fine. That always means one thing, especially if you <laughs> have access to horses, which they did. Oh, boy. Raiding. Yep. Now, all of a sudden, you've got an economy based on uh, raiding other villages and either basically stealing all of their stuff or saying, hey, you're with us now. Make us food, please. One or the other. Or yeah. maybe both. <laughs> Often both. And so this, this union in 53 CE was under a king named Tejode. And his policy for raiding these surrounding villages was let them keep their chieftain or 
prince or whoever is running the show, I don't care. Leave them in power. But let that person know that they have to report to a member of my family. I've always found that approach sort of fascinating. The like, you know what? You guys just keep on doing what you're doing. You just report to us now. In general, you would call that a vassal state. Mm -hmm. And it's a thing that you see throughout history sporadically, but you see it because it actually works pretty well when done with a light touch. Well, that's the thing, right? It sort of lets them feel like they're just, you know, things are as they always were. And there's only a slight change now. Yeah, there's there's a lot of advantages to it. Specifically, it, it yeah, the, the the fact that it makes it easier to swallow, the fact that you're under someone else's control now, is is really its main feature. Because when you get into a situation like, for example, uh, Genghis Khan, where basically your options are everyone dies, or you know give up the the village, submit or die literally and he has a reputation for actually killing everyone in that town like you're not gonna you're not gonna go for that you're gonna just give over the village and it makes conquest really easy yep whereas if you've got no other option other than fight you're gonna fight hard because if you lose you definitely die and there's (laughs) no other choice this isn't even funny but it's just like just try to imagine someone in this situation right they're just like yeah, I guess, I mean, my options are fight really, really hard or die, so uh, excuse me, but I'm going to have to try and kill you now. Well, basically, and I, I mean, it doesn't matter how much you have them outnumbered. They're just going to have to fight. Yeah. Like, and they and, have to. And even if you have someone outnumbered 20 to 1, you don't want to take the inevitable maybe even only a handful of casualties that 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 actually killing them would involve yeah it's just bad practice not a great idea so a lot of people go through history as conquerors trying to be all big and bad and giving no quarter and all of this stuff and you see them just kind of bleeding troops yeah they get whittled away and the other problem is that killing everyone is kind of a bad long-term strategy that's not how you keep not only populations, but also competent leaders. Because if you go in there and you kill all the leaders, who's going to lead now? Yeah. You only have so many competent people and you want them working directly for you, not necessarily governing some backwater. Yeah. So either you could have, for example, the, the Stalin version of this, where he decided that all of his top generals were plotting against him, had all of them killed, had no senior uh, military staff, and, uh-oh, what's this? World War II's breaking out. <laughs> Forced into making a, a pact with Hitler, basically a non-aggression treaty. Yeah. Because he knew that there was no way he could actually survive until he got some officers trained. That's a bad place to be in. Not exactly the kind of poker hand you want to have. And it's and, and that's internal. That's not even talking about working with small villages that aren't necessarily going to be automatically for you. Yeah. Right. It's just it's just bad practice. Or you can go with, for example, the Julius Caesar approach, which is, okay. you know what, everybody? We just fought a civil war. No one had fun there. I won it. I know what you guys are thinking. You're real scared right now. I'll tell you what. I'm going to forgive everyone once. Everyone gets one. Come to me. Say you're sorry. We'll pretend this never happened. And if you are a politician 
that is capable of running a high position, I will put you in that high position. Cross me again, it's over. No second chances. Guess what? It worked really well. A lot of people apologized and a lot of people were put back into key positions and it made him a fairly effective ruler i mean until a whole murder thing but <laughs> yeah you know like from it an d- administrative it didn't perspective end well but like for a while there it was all right from an administrative perspective it was going pretty good i mean if you want to analyze caesar's mistakes it wasn't about how he ran his staff it was about how he portrayed himself and yeah that's a whole different uh, conversation mm-hmm. but that's how you keep good people on and the vassal state model works really well because in the short term keeps your population up, keeps your army numbers up, keeps the people happy, which reduces the chances of uprisings and keeps the keeps the day-to-day, you know, keeps the lights on basically by by keeping the same power structure in place that's always been in place. Long term, you know that because you're controlling all of this, any macro level decisions that need to be made, you're still calling the shots on that, so you don't have to really worry about that too much. Yeah. And when you're talking long term, culturally you're going to assimilate these people anyways to the point that they're basically going to forget that they're vassal states and fall in line not because they're being forced to at the tip of a spear but because that's just how it's always been and it's been that way for their parents and their grandparents yeah it works pretty well and what you see coming out of that is that gogurio grows really quickly it becomes massive it becomes three or four times the size of shila and bakje put together wow. it extends far north into into manchuria into even what would be russian now into uh what what is china now um, I, i'm seeing a recurring trend here with the the northern part of korea just growing and growing and growing well you have such a concentration of of people in the south right because yeah you're a peninsula there's only so far you can spread out yeah in the north you can just kind of keep going for a while because you're the most organized force in that general area mm-hmm. other than whichever chinese state happens to be up against you right now yeah and generally you try not to mess with them too much well because i mean it didn't really work out so well last time from time to time it kind of comes down to it but like you try to avoid that you try and like learn those lessons like, come on Guys, China, we don't want to do this. You're going to make us do this. We don't want to do this. Now, thing is, there's still those uh, commanderies that were left by uh, Emperor Wu. Yep. Two of them have already been disbanded. There were a couple of them that were almost temporary. Not quite temporary, but they only lasted 40, 50 years kind of thing. And were kind of uh, abandoned in about 58 BCE. So there's really only two left. And... You know, the the very early Gogurio forces come up against the two remaining commanderies, and the commanderies are not messing around. Like, it hasn't been that long, really. It's, it's been 150 years, but, like, they still know they still what these it. people are capable of. Yep. The people running these commanderies know why they're there, and they're there because Gojo Shion became, became so powerful that they actually managed to rival... Uh, Han China, yeah, which is a very scary thing for them, and so they they attack the 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 new Gogurio forces. It's not even a contest. The the commanderies take the Korean forces on no problem, drive them back. They destroy their current capital. Wow! And they thought that they had actually completely destroyed them, 
this is around, and I mean, they've, they've been raiding for some time. This is around 220 that they first run into the commanderies militarily, or mm-hmm. two, 220 to 240. They start really kind of rumbling with them. And really the only reason that they went, uh, that the, the, the Gogodio forces thought that they might have a chance against the commanderies is that the Han dynasty had fallen in 220 CE. And it left the commanderies basically unsupported. So whoever was running them were basically independent warlords, more or less. Right. Which is kind of a difficult place to be. And it means that that uh, Gogurio believed that they could attack them and not worry about any repercussions from Imperial China. Yeah. So let's give it a shot, see how it goes. Yeah. No, it, it didn't <laughs> go so well. Yeah. No. <laughs> They spent basically seventy years rebuilding from this thrashing that the that the uh, commanderies laid on them, and during that time, China just didn't support the commanderies at all, and they kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. Eventually, the the one commandery, Xuan uh, Tu, surrendered and incorporated itself into the final commandery. Like they kind of consolidated forces, and they basically like gave up the 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 fortress that they had been staying in, incorporated into the the final uh, Lilang commandery. And it's partially because of lack of resources, but it was partially because, you know, Gogorio is back and raiding and kind of, and that kind of thing. So this is 302 that they, they retreat, but Gogorio starts pushing and pushing and pushing. And this time they knew what they were up against a little bit. They had spent 70 years rebuilding. They pushed all the way back into, and, and this is uh, Liao Dong. That's that, that mini peninsula that sticks off the, yep. the West side, pushing back into there to try and drive the Chinese forces out of there. And they managed to finally conquer Lilang, the last commandery, and drive the Chinese out of the peninsula for the first time, basically in 400 years. Wow. And again, this is another thing we'll see as a recurring narrative in Korean history is trying to push Chinese influence out of the peninsula, making the peninsula as independent and as Korean as possible. Yeah. And obviously this is more or less a pipe dream, really, when you're that close to China, you're going to inevitably become somewhat Chinese just through osmosis. Yeah, there's no way to avoid it with that proximity. But just sort of this direct military command is, you know, we'll do whatever we can to avoid that kind of at all costs. One might say it's unhavable. (laughs) Sure, one might say that. (laughs) So once they have Liao Dong, they are like, like I said, like three or four times the size of any of the other kingdoms. And this kind of sets up the true, what we would call three kingdoms era of Korea is this balance between the three. Because, you know, you have this massive but kind of arid land in the north with these sort of scrappy, less well-organized but absolutely formidable foes in the north. Shila, super organized and concentrated. And Baekje, economic power. Like like I said, it wouldn't be that hard to get this properly balanced. I'm just saying, this this sounds interesting. You could do this in a game. Now that the Chinese are off the peninsula and really off the area north of the peninsula as well, because, you know, Gogodio is huge. Naturally, the next step is to fall to infighting. I was just going to say, and now we just fight it out amongst ourselves, right? Gogodio immediately goes to war with, well, not immediately, goes to war with Baekje in 371, managed to push all the way south to Pyongyang to take that area uh, as their new capital. 
which kind of shows this focus moving away from the north where they're trying to deal with the Chinese down to uh, further south in the peninsula where they're looking to deal with Baekje and Sheila mm-hmm. as their main uh, adversaries. Also, Pyongyang has this, this history as being, uh, you know, the, the capital of Gojoseon. So they're kind of looking for a little bit of legitimacy there as the successor of Gojoseon, yep. which is, you know, a thing they've technically had all this time, but like symbols like this are... It matters, right? Like it's... it's Yeah. People respect that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always this sort of intangible intrinsic quality and things like that in in sort of establishing a continuity, not not just you know on paper or technically or or you know arguing the links of it, but also like like, like demonstrating it, showing it to people. Yeah, like, it has a certain amount of power that just a, a, a mere argument doesn't necessarily have. Somewhat similarly, but like we've all had that game of Civ, right, where you've got your bitter rival. <laughs> and like you finally take them and you're like no you know what i might have raised all your other cities but i'm taking your capital and it's mine now yeah there's something about like taking something that used to be powerful and making it yours and when you add in the fact that it's like not only your rival anymore but like you're almost your predecessor and mm-hmm. you're looking to be legitimate as a successor to them well what's like again- what greater symbol is there yeah once again i would point to a lot of the stuff that that happened around rome right I know that's an easy uh, example to point to, but we're products of Western <laughs> education, as is probably evidenced by this podcast. Yeah, and uh, and Rome becomes a very easy example to point to. But things like actually holding Rome become just as important as demonstrating any sort of chain of political control stretching back to the Roman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. And and those those symbols become just as important to people as any real politique, right? Like it's not just about being able to hold your territory. It's also about my my family goes back so many generations and I'm descended from such and such a person and 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 all of those sort of more inspiring things that go along with it. And it really doesn't necessarily mean anything at the end of the day. I mean when you well, I, I shouldn't say it doesn't mean anything, but you know, from from a very, you know, twentieth, twenty first century perspective on political power, it doesn't matter who 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 your ancestor is yeah. 12 generations back that that has nothing to do with your ability to you know control your sphere of influence and things like that but we're also human beings and and symbols like that do matter to us and that yeah. can't be discounted for sure now Bekje managed to actually sack pyongyang in 371 um okay <laughs> that's not where i expected the story to go well i mean gogorio isn't like this unstoppable behemoth that's you know definitely going to completely roll everybody here sure this would be a very short podcast if that was the <laughs> the end of the story <laughs> like i said they're, they're fairly they're actually fairly well balanced there's constantly times and well and that's the other thing about having a three-sided conflict is that anytime one of them is kind of getting out of hand the other two of them yeah that's fair band together and it, it balances things out nicely in terms of political power they sack pyongyang which again is is a symbolic thing but it means that Gogurio takes a look at their their military organization, decides that they're not necessarily as organized as they might like to be, that maybe they've been doing a lot of work based on uh, numbers and gumption. Yeah, working hard, not smart. Yeah, and, and decide to really look at uh, reorganizing to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. They also adopted Buddhism as a state religion. But like just after this whole sacking of Pyongyang they decide to 
do something about this. They have this king come up, uh, Guangeto the Great, ruled 374 to 413. And he decides, like, we're, we're going to take this show on the road. He's responsible for conquering over 64 walled cities. His number of just villages was pegged at about 1,400. Wow. We'll, we'll just keep getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Some of that is moving south into Boshila and Bakje. He finishes off taking the Liaodong uh, Peninsula. There were a couple of smaller holdouts, not necessarily linked with Imperial China. But, you know, again, there's always these little city-states here and there, right? But completely takes Liaodong. He beats Bekje badly enough that you know, drives the borders far back and more or less forces them into an alliance with, with him. Mm-hmm. Um, also vassalized uh, Shila, so... This is basically the de facto first unification of of uh, the Korean Peninsula. Thing is, it's not really a unification. It's more of a, a military victory with the the trappings of a unification. It's uh, a lot more like a uh, it's 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 a lot more like a, an armistice than it is necessarily unification. Yeah, Guangeto's son uh, Jiangsu uh, moves the capital. Back to Pyongyang after the the sacking, he's like, "No, no, no! This is where this is where the capital is." Remember that conversation we had about symbols and stuff. That. Deal with it. This is this is how it's going to be. He continues the expansion efforts, but the thing about Jiangsu is that he's actually he's he's one of the longest rulers in Eastern Eastern Asian history that we can verify. I mean, there's like that one Chinese emperor that I think lived to 118, but he's one of those ancient mythical ones that we don't really necessarily count. Hard to verify. Very difficult to verify. Citation definitely needed <laughs> on that one. <laughs> Jiang Su lived to age 98. He ruled for 79 years of that. It's a long time back then. It's a very, very long time. It's um, a long time now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He went to war again with Baek Jae and Sheila more territory into the south he actually pushed Bekje all the way down to Seoul which was their capital at the time and, mm-hmm. and took that as well and I mean that's kind of the high point of Goguryeo power during the Three Kingdoms era or at least the segment of the Three Kingdoms era where if you were to kind of take a snapshot in and around the year 400 to 450 CE, you would look at this and go, oh, Goguryeo's got this one in the bag. They've basically got control of the peninsula. They've driven out the Chinese. They might be able to make a go of this. Well, I mean, you and I both know that's not how it's going to work out. And you and I both know that this is the spot that we're going to end this episode because <laughs> it makes a really good ending point for an episode. Uh-huh. Now you got to wait. So next time, Phil, next time, we're going to talk about the other she dropping on Goguryeo. And uh, see how that all falls out. Can't wait. The balance between the three kingdoms had tipped decisively in favor of Gogoryeo, but that didn't mean that they had succeeded in uniting the peninsula. If anything, they were giving both Bekche and Sheila more reasons to hate them. The peninsula also wasn't a closed system. Both China and Japan had the potential to upset the balance of power, and both had good reasons to get involved. Next time, we'll see the conclusion of the Three Kingdoms era of Korea. That episode will be up on October 15th. 
Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.